You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, church. Morning. My name is Tommy. Um, myself and my wife, uh, Moya, we've been um, at Hope Church for about a year or so now. And we've really um, enjoyed being part of this fellowship and community of believers. Um, so I moved here in April last year from Reading. Um, my, I was working as, a, as an engineer with a company, um, and I got a job at Sizewall Power Station. Um, so, you know, um, if anything's wrong with electricity, I'm not the guy responsible for it. I just, you know, I just work on a plan and try to maintain things there. Um, so that's a little bit about myself. Um, today I've been tasked with um, bringing you um, uh, this, um, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, so uh, I'll be expounding on that today. So help me out here, guys. Um, I appreciate it very much. Um, let's just say a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you gave us your word, Lord. You said your word is life, oh God. And Lord, we just pray that you will open our eyes that we may see, Lord, and that you open our ears that we may hear, Lord. What do you have to say? And I pray, oh God, that it will not be me speaking. Um, it will not be my words, or my thoughts, or my philosophy, but to be your words, Lord. Speaking to everyone here, including the one who speaks, oh God. We bless your holy name, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, um, so the text for today is going to be from Luke 10, um, 25 to 37. Um, I think I was saying to someone that, um, you know, if you come into the Christian faith, one of the sort of your minimum requirements for the job is or of, the, of being a Christian is being a good Samaritan, you know. If you, if you say you're a Christian and you're not a good Samaritan, or you, you don't know what it is to be a good Samaritan, it's like saying you're, you're a nurse and you don't know what it means to administer medicine. It's a basic you know, requirement of the job. So this is a story that it's well known. Believers and non-believers use this. I mean, I think in um, some of Barack Obama's speeches, he's, he's used the story of a good Samaritan. So it's, it's a well-talked-about um, story um, across the world and through the ages. But... The problem with this is the fact that when we look at a parable that Jesus Christ gave, the parables were not um, sort of just moral stories. In fact, it says in Scripture that these parables are given so that those of the kingdom may understand, but those who are perishing will not understand. So the parables were distinctly, distinctively given with a, a, a spiritual truth that was actually um, only those who are of the spiritual mind could discern. So... We are going to dig into this um, to sort of draw out what it is Jesus is, is telling um, us in this parable. So this parable is for believers and non-believers. And it's good to remind ourselves about these things. So I'll just read um, from Luke 10, 25 to 37. I think, I'm not sure if that comes up on the scriptures, but if you have your Bible, um, follow me please. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will leave. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest 
happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw the man, he passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All right. First thing is the scenario here we have. Jesus Christ in a setting, a public setting, and an expert of the law come to him to approach the question. So what we notice is that this question actually, um, this whole scenario comes from a, a non-genuine place because he came to test Jesus Christ. It wasn't, you know, like the Samaritan woman at the well asking questions about worshiping God. This was a man who was an expert. He knew his stuff. So he came to test Jesus Christ to say if Jesus knew his stuff and to probably embarrass him in public. And the second thing we realize is that this man actually knew his stuff. Because when Jesus Christ asked him, you know, what does he say in the law? The man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you realize that in Matthew 22, when he asked Jesus Christ, what is the greatest commandment? This was the exact answer Jesus gave. And it's been said by theologians that, you know, um, you had the, the laws and the prophet, and that was reduced to three laws, love your God, walk humbly before him, and love mercy. And Jesus Christ was the greatest theologian of all times, reduced it to two laws, you know, love God for all your heart, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But this expert of the law actually also knew the answer. So it wasn't just Jesus Christ who knew this answer. This expert of the law actually gave the exact answer Jesus Christ gave. So he was good. He was good at his job. He was an expert of the law. Second, or third thing we realize is that this man came to justify himself. Because after he, asked, after he answered this question, Jesus Christ said, yes, you've answered correctly. Now, you know, go and do this. And man said, well, who's my neighbor? You know, what do you mean? Okay, who's my neighbor? Now, it says he sought to justify himself. Now, Jesus Christ says, or he responded to Jesus Christ, love the Lord your God, all your heart, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he didn't say, well, how can I love God more? Where am I lacking in my love for God? He went on to say, well, I know that. Who is my neighbor? You know, and who is this neighbor that I must love? Now, this is a very crucial point because it revealed the heart of the man asking the question. And if you remember one of Paul's writings, he talked about his past as a Pharisee, um, as an expert in the law. And he wrote one part, that, according to the law, I am faultless. You see, the Pharisees, the expert in the law, they knew their stuff. So according to the law, they're like, I'm perfect in that. You know, I, I, give, I tie the tenth of my cumin. I give to this, and I do this, and I do this. I am faultless. So the guy thought, I'm pretty good with God. But, okay, who's this neighbor that you want me to love? So he was trying to show, look, I'm, I'm quite good. I'm not even going to bother asking about how can I love God more. And it's just this self-justification that Jesus wanted to address in this expert of the law. And there are three things that Jesus Christ tries to highlight that this man is missing. And the first is that he has a limited understanding of his neighbor. And the second is that 
he lacked the proper motive to love his neighbor. And the third is that the demonstration of this love for God and for his neighbor is deficient. And that's what Jesus Christ draws or tries to address in this parable. And so we go to the first question, who is my neighbor? And in today's sort of context, who is your neighbor? Well, surely human beings are your neighbor. It doesn't matter who they are. But we have to truly appreciate the context in which this question was asked. You see, in the first century, um, in the Jewish context, the, uh, the, if, you, if you think about it, like the solar system, where the Jewish man was the, was the sun, the center of that solar system, and in the immediate um, orbiting vicinity were his family. And then after that were his, his relatives. And after that were his fellow Jewish kindred who worshipped and lived like he did, dressed like he did, acted like he did. Those were his community. Those were his neighbor. That is the context. Everybody outside of that were pretty much people that lived in the outer darkness. That were not part of the community of the chosen people of God. In a sense, they were the enemies of God. And that Christ thought about this in Matthew 5, 43. He said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so to them, and this is what the Pharisees taught, this is what the teachers of the law taught, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So there were some people that they considered neighbor and some people they considered enemy. But Jesus Christ taught them better. And says, no, pray for your enemy. So treat your enemy as if he were your family, as if he were someone that was a kindred to you. And so in their understanding, they were the good people, my neighbor, my people, my family that worship like me, that dress like me, that live like me, and they were the enemy. And how did they justify this? You know, these people weren't evil people that just wanted to be wicked. How did they justify this? There's a particular passage in Psalm 139, 21 and 22, what David says, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, or abhor those who rebel against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. And so they park their car on this particular passage and says, oh, look at this. Oh, I, I hate those who hate you, Lord, and I abhor those who abhor you. And they park their car there and say, well, therefore, it is therefore a virtue to hate people if they're not among that circle, that tightly drawn circle of my family and kindred. And that's how they justify this. Now, let us take this away from the, modern, from the past um, um, uh, sort of context, the ancient context, and bring it into our modern context. How is it that we see this um, interpreted um, in our society and that could even affect us within the church? And the thing we have to understand is that this parable, um, you know, we talk about a good Samaritan. Oh, the good Samaritan and his donkey and helping man. But this was actually a very scandalous parable. It was a very offensive parable. It would be equivalent to saying um, the good pagan in the church. The Christians are going to be like, you crazy? What do you mean the good pagan? How can a pagan be good? How can they possibly do what is good? Or saying, oh, the good Muslim. Oh, come on, man. They don't know what they're talking about. They, they have no idea of God. They are devoid of the of the. Of the common relationship that we enjoy with God. They, they don't know that. You can't say the good Muslim or the good pagan. They don't know God. That's how scandalous this parable was. And in our society, we realize that actually there are some people that we see as other. I see as in the outer darkness. I see as separated from the commonwealth of God. And yes, people that live away from God, that live without the knowledge of God, that live um, as enemies of God, are indeed separated from the commonwealth of God. But how does that translate in our action to them? 
do we say, because they didn't know God, we're going to turn our backs on them. Um, we're going to treat them with scorn. We're going to look at them as, Psh, oh, poor things. You know, if, they, if only they knew God. How, do we, how does this come out in our expression towards the other? And we've seen in recent um, events in America, issues of race brought to the surface. And um, one of the, the, the things that sort of really gets me about the issues of race is because the people fighting against racism don't actually even know what they're fighting against. They, they, they talk about racism like it's, um, um, it's merely um, a skin thing. It's much deeper than that. You see, the, the real issue or the moral issue we have with, with racism is the fact that it is an assault upon the image of God in the very human being. It's not about skin color or something. It is the fact that God created men, all type of men. The short, high, fat, wide, long, thin. He created all of us. And God loves that kind of stuff. God, you know, if, if God makes things, he makes it multicolors. He doesn't just deal in monocolor. That's why the world we see is so beautiful. But in doing so, he put it, he said, let us make man in our own image. And he said, let's make Chinese men in our image. Or let's make Jewish men in our own image. He said, let us make man in our image. And it is in this vessel, he put his image in it. So when you come and say, oh, well, I don't like that person because of, uh, he's got this skin or he's got this earlobe or he's got this. It's the image of God. That is why we love man, regardless of what class they are, regardless of what sex they are, regardless of what creed they are, regardless of if they're in this church or not. The second thing um, is the issue. That's what, so our neighbor is pretty much everybody made in the image of God. So anyone you can see is our neighbor, right? But there's another set of people that we can't see who are also our neighbor. And they are under serious assault in our community, in our society, around the world today. I think it's one of the most greatest tragedy happening today in this world. Comparable to um, um, issues of, of slavery in the past, which is the issue of the attack of the unborn in the womb. You see, they are also made in the image of God. It says, you know... Um, I was, I was, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It says God knew you whilst you were in your mother's womb. So we're not dealing with, someone once told me, well, you know, it's like, a, 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 it's like cells, you know, like your skin cells. I said, well, if your skin cell fell to the ground, would it ever develop into a human being? No, it wouldn't. So we're not talking about skin cells. We're talking about a human being made in God's very image. In Finland, there's a recent case that was brought out. I was, read, I was watching on, on the news that it almost completely eradicated um, um, down syndrome or children um, with down syndrome. It's like, wow. Like, wow, what is this medical achievement? How did they achieve this? Well, um, they abort them. As soon as they find out that child has a possibility of down syndrome, they abort them. And there was this doctor that, sit, that sat there with a straight face. And she said, well, we're trying to prevent suffering of these people. And that is because she has no idea who her neighbor is. She doesn't understand that regardless of whatever condition that person is born with, that person also is made in God's image. And that is something that in our own context we need to take. Because it's easy to say, well, we're not like the Jews and they have people and we're not, we're not like that. But there might be cases where we are actually being prejudiced against other people or we are not caring enough for the unborn. People that we see and people that we don't see, they are also made in God's image. So that, that's, that's a sort of umbrella of who my neighbor is. The second um, um, issue that Christ tried to address, which this um, expert of the law did not get, was, why should I love my neighbor? Now, 
Len will tell you because he's an expert of the law. That, and I did a bit of research into this, was that um, in the English um, sort of, or the British system, we are ruled on the uh, common law, and that includes civil and criminal law. Yes, yeah, I got my <laughs> research. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, um, but these laws stretch all the way back to the 14th century from medieval times. So a long time ago, 700 years or so, and we've accumulated many of these laws. And some of these laws are still in force today, and we don't even know what they are. And therefore, we could actually break some of these laws without even knowing that we're breaking some of these laws. Now, I looked at some of the weird and wonderful laws that we still have um, in the land. And one of them is that all beach whales and sturgeon must be offered to the reigning monarch. Did you know that? <laughs> so if there was a, a whale somewhere on the Felixstowe beach, and you saw a whale there, and nobody refused to offer that to the monarch, we're actually breaking the law. I found that very interesting. In fact, there was a, fu- a fisherman who actually caught a sturgeon and gave it to the queen, and then she responded to him, saying, you can do whatever you want to do with it. And then this fisherman got done because sturgeons were actually protected species at that time. So, <laughs> so he was trying to keep the law, but then broke the law with one hand. So it, it's, it's a really convoluted thing. Another one is, it is illegal to activate your burglar alarm without first nominating a key holder who can switch it off in your absence. Now, I thought I was weird. What if you're the only person living in the house? Would you give your key or your neighbor? Mm, maybe. Well, you know, we're talking about a good neighbor here, so I don't know. Um, it is illegal to carry a plank along a pavement in the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police District. That is how I've seen. Len is nodding. It's like, yes, of course. <laughs> and, 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 I was, <laughs> and I was looking at this, and I think, well, what is that about? Right? So we've got the stretches of law um, that, have accum- that we've accumulated over time within our society. Now, if one day Len, after having done his rigorous studies and hours and hours of looking at the law, comes to us and says, guys, I found it. I discovered what will end all your problems. There is one law, just one law, that if you keep this law, you will pass all the other laws. You will not contravene the other laws. That is, if there's a sturgeon on, on, on the beach somewhere, you don't have to worry about it because you've kept this law. And if you're walking with a plank in front of the police, you, you don't have to, because you've got this law. Well, I'll be like, what? what do you mean? You've got one law to satisfy this, all other laws? Surely we want to listen to that. We want to hear what, that has to, what has got to, to do with us. And that is what this is about. The first point is the divine command. Why should I love my neighbor? Because it is the law the divine command that encapsulates all the other commands. If we get this one right, we're pretty much safe on the other ones. So if I'm belting it down 100 miles per hour, I say, you know what, it's fine because I've kept that law. <laughs> Not saying no one should go down 100 miles per hour. But the point is that if we've kept this one law, then we are secured in keeping the other laws. That's how important this is. Why should I love my neighbor? Because God says, love your neighbor. Love me with all your heart, strength, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you're fine. You know, you don't need to eat. You don't need to, you can eat pork. You can do whatever you want. You can do, as long as you keep these laws, you are safe. That's how important this is because it's connected to our own salvation. You keep this and you are right before God. Second reason why we should love our neighbor is because it completes our love for God. John says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love God, their brother or sister, whom they see, how can they love God whom they have not seen? So, you know, example is my wife here, Moya. We got married over a year ago. And um, 
one thing I've noticed in our marriage is that her family is like my family, and my family is like her family. So as siblings, the other day we were having a quarrel over the fact that um, she, she didn't want to give more money to her sibling because her sibling was bugging her for some money. I was like, what's wrong with you? She's your junior sister. Don't you know that's what all the sisters are supposed to do? Um, and she was like, well, no, you don't know. I was like, you know what? I'm going to tell her to start coming to me to ask if she needs some money and stuff like that. So it was almost like, you know, it's a kind of weird situation because that's her own sibling. But I'm there going, no, 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 no. You know, I'm, I'm going to be looking after her now. I don't think you're looking after her well enough. And in the same way, she worries about my own siblings. And that is how it is. You know, God says to us, what John writes in, 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 in his letter, how can you say, oh, I love God. Oh, I love you, Lord. But it's, oh, dirty, dirty human beings. Oh, but I love you, Lord. But he created us human beings. It is his image in those human beings. That is why, because our love for God is not complete until we love that which is part, that which he has created, which he has placed his image upon. The third reason why we should love our neighbors is because it is the gospel witness. Paul writes, James, Cephas, and John, this is in Galatians, James, Cephas, and John, who those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And so this is when Paul went to Jerusalem, and after his conversion, he went with Barnabas. And then the apostles, they recognized that Paul had within him the mission to take the, 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 the gospel to the Gentiles. And it would look like it was their assignment to take the gospel to the Jews. And so they said, wonderful. All right, you're going to look after the Gentiles. We'll look after the Jews. Fantastic. Just, you know, just make sure that you're looking after the poor and those who are in need. So right at the very birth, right at the very start of this Christian faith um, that we have, right at the very start of the work of mission, of the mission work of evangelizing, there was this element of looking after the poor. There was taking the gospel to them, but also looking after their physical and immediate needs. And so it is part of our gospel witness. It is not separate from our gospel witness. It's not something else we do. It is part and parcel of what we did. And the fourth point, why I should love my neighbor, is it is the evidence of eternal life. Now, we have to look at this carefully, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. I am not saying that by loving your neighbor, you have eternal life. Or by if you do these good things, you have eternal life. That is not what I'm saying. James says, you see a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, some people have looked at this and said, well, you see, you need works. You need to do all these good deeds to have eternal life. That is not what James is saying. Because when you look at scripture holistically, it says also in Ephesians 2, it says you are saved by grace through faith. This not of yourself. Why? So that none can boast. Because if I did get into heaven by, you know, helping 100 people, being a Mother Teresa in Ipswich, then I can go to God and say, well, you know how many people I helped in Ipswich? I can boast. But Scripture says you can't boast. There is nothing that you can do to have eternal life in of yourself. It is freely given to you by God. However, that thing we call faith has to be a living faith. As, as James says, a body without spirit is dead. So faith, so, oh, I love you, Moya, I really do. But I'm not faithful to her. I don't listen to her. I don't regard her. I don't treat her well. Would you, would you not question my love for her? 
Oh, I love you, Jesus. I really do. Oh, mate, I'm hungry. Oh, sorry, mate. I'm just um, busy praying to God right now. That is not the type of faith God is calling us to. It's a faith that actually has fruits, evidence. There is an evidence of this faith. That, if you see your life and say, oh, I am doing what God has called me to do. I'm acting in response to this faith that is in me. That is evidence that you have eternal life. That's why loving our neighbors is evidence that we do have that eternal life. We do have that communion with God. Now, the third point is this. Why or how can I love my neighbor? Now, I have no interest in giving a set of rules that on a Sunday evening, you go to your neighbor's house and knock and says, yes, two bottles of Fanta, two bottles of Pepsi, go and peace be with you. This is not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to give you rules that you follow, but rather principles and precepts from scriptures, and particularly from this parable. Now, the first thing we should do, how can I love my neighbor? We have to love our neighbor compassionately. It's very important that the source of our love for others has to be out of compassion, especially those when people don't need it. It has to be out of compassion. Now, if you read this um, passage, it says, the priest came and walked away, looked the other way, just went away. The Levites came and looked away. And then the Samaritan man came. And what did he do? He had compassion. He saw him and had compassion. That was the first thing. And the thing about compassion is when you have compassion on, on other people, it's no longer about yourself. It's about their plights, their needs, what, they, um, what needs to be done to help them. That's what compassion does. You see, if we're acting out of, well, I hope this guy can see me, or let me just give him this money so he can leave me alone. That is not love. That is not how God has called us to love. It has to be out of compassion. Um, I was doing a little bit of, of research on this. Um, uh, um, Tom was, was, um, brought my eyes to this, and, and, and we looked at the Greek word for compassion. And it meant to move in the inward parts. And that's, I like looking at some translations because... Imagine when you've seen, think about any time you've seen something on TV or seen someone on the side of the road or someone that needed help. And when you become moved to compassion, there's almost a, it's almost, you can't control the feeling. It's almost like your chest heaves, your heart beats slightly faster and you think, how can I help this person? That's compassion. There's something, it causes a physical reaction and it's not about us. And this is the first point for which we have to love. The second point is sacrificially. We have to love sacrificially. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look at, said, look after him, and when I return, I'll pay you back. Now, it cost that man something to help. Someone says, oh, I, I need some help here. Oh, okay, yes, 20p. Go in peace, brother. You know you can do a bit more than that. You know, when David, um, the Ark of Covenant was brought back to Israel after it was taken away, and a man offered a piece of land to David and, and says, well, you know, you use this. Oh, and David said to the man, I will not give God what costs me nothing because he loved God. He was going to give God something that cost him something. So love has to be, we have to love sacrificially. It's going to cost us something. We know it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our time, our energy. It's going to cost us our resources. And sometimes, actually, it will cost us time spent in prayer. You know, I've, been, I've had situations where someone's told me, I've, I've got this issue and I need prayers for. It's like, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I pray for them. And then months later, I'm like, oh, 
I've completely forgotten about that. How often are we like that, where we spend so little time praying for people in our family, inside the church, outside the church, laboring in prayer for them, for their salvation, for issues in their life, for victory over sin. How often do we spend time in prayer for them? It's going to cost us something. And then thirdly, we have to love practically. Now, the Samaritan man nursed the wounds and took him to an innkeeper. In essence, the man looked after the practical needs of the victim. Now, uh, there's a passage in James that says, suppose a brother comes to you and is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. I find that one of the most funniest passages in scriptures. Because I could just picture a guy, say, oh, man, I'm hungry. And like, brother, I'm sensing right now that you are without food. But I'm going to pray for you, for manna from heaven, to feel that's not what they need. The man's just come for food. He needs nourishment. And so, what does he need? Food. Oh, I'm cold, mate. Oh, oh well, would you like a, a cup of coke? I'm cold, mate. Oh, would you like a piece of bread? I'm cold. The clue is in the world cold. And Christian circles, we have this thing that I call Christianese, where we, we learn the Christian lingo, go well, brother, peace be with you, sister, you know, world and Holy Spirit, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And we have all these words. And we forget sometimes that when we're having conversations with people, we don't listen to what they need. We don't hear what they're struggling with. And then we give them uh, help that they're not even asking for. And so a classic example of this was earlier this week when I was in Soul Survivor. Irony of ironies. I was reading this and just reading a book on this and, and, and that. And a lady came out and she was, in, she was distressed in tears. And, you know, people were sat on the grass and walking around. And I looked at her and I was slightly distressed. And I had compassion. And I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, who's going to look after this girl? And I was like, oh, but I don't know her and everything. I said, okay. Eventually, I got up and went to her. I said, so you're right. I was like, I understand you. might not want to talk to me and all that. I said, um, would you want me to help you and pray with you at this moment? She's like, okay. I thought, okay, great. So we prayed. And I was clueless. I didn't know what to do after. So I said, okay, all right. Go in peace, my sister. And then <laughs> and I went and sat down. And I carried on reading. And a few minutes later, one of the ladies, the volunteers helping out soul, came out and sat beside this lady and just Talk, I could see she was talking to her and talking. And I sat with her for, I, I don't know how long, maybe 20 minutes or, or, or for, for a long period of time. And man, I was thinking, that's probably what I should have done. Can't someone to actually come and look after her rather than making a prayer that maybe helped. But she also had a practical need. Maybe she needed someone to reassure her. And this is part of the issue here is that sometimes we can over-spiritualize things as Christians rather than just meeting the practical need of someone at a point. And that's what the Samaritan does. The fourth point is, how can I love my neighbor continually? You see, he didn't just say, well, I helped you yesterday. I've given you to this innkeeper. All right, mate, you know, sort yourself out. And, and then you got this guy that's half dead crawling out of the inn trying to sort himself out. But he says, let him stay here. Whatever happens, I'll reimburse you. So for the future days that he needs to get well, I will reimburse you. There was a continual love. But it's, further, it's even more than this. If that Samaritan man having left, they're going, ah, oh, thank God I helped that man. And was walking back on that road and saw another man half dead on the side of the road. He should go and help that man also. And the next day, if he sees someone on the road, he should go and help. And the next day, he should do the same thing. At this point, one might want to suggest to the man that perhaps he should stop walking on that road. <laughs> if he doesn't want to go bankrupt. But the point is that our love has to be continual. It cannot be 
Um, well, I, I, I did this wonderful work of charity well, five months ago. Oh, my goodness. You see how many kids I fed and how many people I helped. It has to be continual. And it has to be full every time. And so to draw this um, into conclusion, we have to ask ourselves, who loves like this? Who loves compassionately, sacrificially, practically, continually? Who does all these things continually? And we look at ourselves. I've given you examples of myself where I fall short. We all fall short. We, we can't love the way God has called us to love. You know, God says, love me with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And he said, do that for two hours and you will have eternal life. Do that continually and love your neighbor as yourself continually. I fall short of loving God fully, continually. And my neighbor fully, continually. I fall short of that. So, humanly speaking, it is an impossibility. That is just the truth. It's an impossibility. However, it says there is one person who loves compassionately, sacrificially, practically, continually. There's only one person that's managed to do this. That is Jesus Christ. He came to this world because he loves the world. He took compassion on the sons of men. You know, it says in Scripture that you know, Jesus Christ saw the crowds and they were like sheep without shepherd. And he had compassion on them. And he fed them and he met their needs. He lost sacrificially. He gave himself. He left glory, eternal glory. We can't comprehend what heaven looks like. But it says he dwells in inaccessible light. And he comes and lives in a dingy little parlor somewhere in Galilee. That's the God. That's what he did. He left all that glory and came down. That is sacrificial. And he says he loves practically. He came down. He bound our wounds. He healed the sick. And he met our greatest, deepest need. That is to be right with God. He made us right with God. So he came down and lived among us practically. He lived practically. And he's doing this even till today. It says in scripture that he is continually interceding for us. So there is a, it's, it isn't just like, well, 2,000 years ago, I did a really great job. Even till today, when we sin, he comes to us and binds our wounds and heals us. We've heard words today spoken here about the fact that God really does love us. And he's inviting us into his presence. And he's still doing that even now. A continual love. And so you might ask yourself, you know, I see that lack in myself. I see that lack of love for God as I should. And sometimes I fall short and I see that. But I want to love like God wants me to love. Because the final instruction here is, you go and do likewise. It's not think about this. That's a wonderful parable. Think about it. Go and do likewise. So this is a command for us to go and do likewise. But you say, well, it's difficult. To love like that all the time, it's difficult. But that's why it says in Scripture that he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so my encouragement to us is that we humble our hearts today. We don't say, well, I know I'm a nice person. No, I know I do good things. We have to be honest enough to say, I know I'm not good enough. I know I cannot love like this. I know I'm anemic in my love. And in that understanding, draw close to the one who is love himself. The fountain of all loves. Whose love doesn't run out. And go to him and say, help me. Help me to love. And find grace and submission to him. So we're just going to close with that. And I'm just going to um, um, invite people uh, later as the worship is going. That if you feel like, yeah, I was working close to God before. And I feel like pff, I'm, I'm struggling here. And um, I don't love as much as I 
as I should love God. And I struggle with loving people. It could be your spouse. It could be your relatives. I struggle with this. There's going to be an opportunity for us to pray um, for those people that God will give them the grace to love because it's not a humanly, um, it's not a human, it doesn't come from human power, human strength. So we will just close with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, we just, we pray, oh God, that you would enlarge our hearts beyond what we can do ourselves. Help us to love like you love. You are that good Samaritan. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.